Today's Torah T in B'Shalach, uh, and we'll review a little bit, uh, it's a very, very detailed, long, every sicha, every talk. What I give over here is just merely a, a little bit, something to take out from the Rebbe Sichas, because the Rebbe Sichas become are very uh, complicated, and you know, it's very detailed, and it's beyond the time allowance and the scope to go into the details. So... We'll go slow the time. Uh, we'll start today backwards, which means we'll start with volume 16, and we'll go back to volume 11, because volume 11 is really a very technical, halachic discussion. And I felt that maybe if we start with that, maybe we'll get lost. So let's start with something a little bit more directly on the Parsha, which is more interesting. And matter of fact, we have here a very difficult Rashi to discuss in the very beginning of the Parsha, something very difficult to really accept. Rashi here says something very, very uh, seemingly uh, not something that we can accept easily. All right, this is talking about, and of course the Rebbe, his uh, insight, his brilliant, comes up with a, a very, very simple way to answer it. So there shouldn't be a problem. So, of course, we're talking about here, after the Jews left Egypt, ten plagues, and Paroi finally sends them out. So the Jewish people are leaving, and everything looks like it's going the right way. But then Pharaoh changes his mind. He says, what did we do? We let... All this free labor, we let them all go. So it says, while the Jewish people were camped at the Yamsuf, at the Sea of Reeds, and the Egyptians were chasing after them, as we know the rest of the story, that the Jewish people eventually went into the sea, Moshe Rabbeinu, raised the staff, the sea split, and the Jewish people went through the dry land. But what happened? They were being chased by the Egyptians. The Torah describes how the Egyptians chased them and went after them, trying to catch them. So it says like this in verse 7. If you look at the, look at the board, it says, Vayikach, and he took. This is Pharaoh. Pharaoh took. Sheish meyos rechev bachur. He took 600 of the best carriages. V'choyl rechev Mitzrayim. Along with all the rest of the carriages that were in Egypt. So he took the 600 best carriages together with everything else that there was in Egypt. V'shalishim al-kuloi. And he had the officers, the heads were over overseeing this whole massive... Uh, of carriages coming now, how do they, how do they uh, run after? How do they? Who used to pull the carriages? Today we have machines. We have a motor that pulls the engine that pulls the car. But in those days, they used to use animals. The animals used to pull the carriages. That's what used to pull the carriages. Now, if you remember earlier during the plagues, it says that Hashem brought down the hail, and He brought down the uh, the, the, there was a magefa, there was a dever, there was a, a plague, and the animals were smitten, and uh, there was... So Rashi wonders, and Rashi asks the question, Where these these animals to lead all these carriages? They needed to have a lot of carriages. But all the animals were already smitten. We, we thought that they were beaten up during the ten plagues. Where did they get the animals to lead these carriages? Well, in the Pasuk over there earlier, it says that when Moshe Reina warned them, he said, well, the hail is coming. He says, if you don't... So he says for this. So he says like this. If you're going to say, if you're going to say it was the Egyptians, but the verse says, Earlier in that's in Shmoy's Tezvav, it says Tezvav, 
Vayomos kol mikna mitzrayim. Older cattle died. Vayomos koil mikna mitzrayim. All of the cattle, all of the animals of Egypt died. Vayomos, they died. So where did they get it from? Now, maybe you're going to say, well, the Jewish people, when they left, there were some cattle left over there behind. But it says, the verse says, the Jewish people said, and it says in Shemais, chapter 10, verse 26, also our cattle, all the Jewish people left with their cattle, with everything that they had. Nothing. Nothing was left over there. So where did, where did they get all these animals to pull all these 600 chosen wagons together with the, all the other carriages of Egypt? So Rashi says, Mishel Mihoyu. Whose were they? So, if you read in the verse before, in Shmois 9, 20. Over there it says, Hayore is Dvar Hashem. When Moshe Rabbeinu initially warned them that God was going to bring the plague on them, there were some people that believed that God would do them. And therefore they went and they chased all their animals into shelter. So that later on when the plague arrived, it actually didn't affect their animals. So, it turns out, it turns out that there were animals from those people that feared the word of Hashem. Now, one would think an Egyptian who heeds Moshe's warning and fears the word of Hashem should be a little bit of a a uh, higher level should be a little bit on a better level than to going to chase the Jewish people and try to kill them. You know, here they're out. Why did they participate? It was the Yore Dvar Hashem, it has to say. They're the one that gave the animals for them to chase them with. So, why would these Egyptians do that? <coughs> So Rashi quotes here a very strong statement. And this is a very problematic statement. Rashi says that Mikan that Rab Shimon said from here, from this place, Rab Shimon said, he learned from there. And look what he says. He says, Kosher Sheba Mitzrim. The best kosher means like a kosher, like a kosher piece of meat. A kosher Egyptian, he says. He says, the best of the Egyptian haroig, kill. What does he mean to say? You think that this good Egyptian is such a nice guy and therefore he deserves? No. The best of the Egyptian, you should kill him. Don't wait till he comes to kill you. You go kill him first. No, basically he's saying, the best of the Egyptians, you kill him. And then he continues, he says, the best of the snakes, you think there's a snake over there. Don't take any chances. Don't take any chances with the snake and say, well, maybe he won't bite me. Crush his skull. In other words, they may seem to be innocent. They may seem to be uh, not a problem. But look, here you have the people who feared God's words, and they are the ones that gave the animals to go chase after the Jews to the uh, by the Absof, they took to, to, to kill them, to chase and them or bring them back. Maybe they couldn't say no to Pharaoh. Huh? Maybe they couldn't say no to Pharaoh when he demanded their cattle. Well, in that case, well, I understand that. So, good point, but you see the fact that they were all killed, and Rash says it means that they were not actually good, because had they been, had it, we'll see in a minute, had it been their fault, had it not been their fault, then why would they be killed then? I mean, so, but the point here is, the difficulty we have with this Rashi is, it's a blanket statement to say, Rav Shimon say, the best of the Egyptian, seems to be a blanket statement about all Egyptians, 
there's actually a different version. The it comes the sourced out of the Mechilta. Uh, that's the midrash on the on the Chumash. Over there, it actually says it even worse than it says here. Over there, it says the most innocents amongst the idol worshippers you should kill. And that statement was used by many of the non-Jews in their debates with the Jews to try to uh, defame the Torah and the statements of the rabbis of the sages by saying, how could they dare say such a thing that the best of the idol worshippers that you should kill? Okay, Rashi doesn't say idol worshippers here. Rashi says the best of the Egyptian. But also seems to be an outrageous statement. How could you uh, collaterally say about all Egyptians to kill them? And um, seems to be unreasonable. And what's the connection with the next part Rashi brings down? The best of the snakes. I mean, we're not here to talk about snakes. And we're not here to teach people, uh, Rashi, how to behave uh, when you come across a snake. So why... Why does Rashi have to say at all uh, anything about snakes? Now, uh, very specifically, the generality over here, there are many good Egyptians. How do we know? They're good Egyptians. What happened when, when Yaakov first came down to Egypt? Pharaoh treated him reasonably, right? He gave him Goshen. He says, sit in the best of the land. I mean, Yosef was the second in the command, but it was uh, treated pretty decently. We can't say every Egyptian is bad. Yes, you say there are some Egyptians bad, but why would we say that all Egyptians are bad? That's a, a question that is troublesome to make a such a blanket general statement. And look what we're saying. We're saying the kosher sheba mitzrim. Even the kosher one of the Egyptians also needs to be killed. Pharaoh's daughter saved Moshe. Pharaoh's daughter saved Moshe. Good. Excellent. And then there's another even more difficulty. Later on in the Chumash, the Torah says, the Torah explicitly states, do not, not to despise a mitzri. Not to despise a mitzri. How could you say, kill every Egyptian, and then it says not to despise a mitzri? It says that Egyptian that wants to come to convert the third generation, we can allow them, we can let them in to the community of God. They're allowed to intermarry. We can accept a conversion. So if an Egyptian comes to convert, that means he uh, must be a kosher sheba mitzrim, a because he wants to come and join the Jewish religion, you know. So, question is, how can we say that we have to kill them? How are you gonna, how are you gonna convert them if there's a, a blanket statement like that? Well, we also have a blanket statement like that for Amalek. Well, Amalek is actually that's true, but Amalek, uh, there's a special reason. And Amalek is the exception to the rule. But over here, it seems to associate this with specifically uh, the fact that uh, they're almost to say that there is no good Egyptians. But Amalek, we're not associating if they're good or, not, or bad. That's another thing that needs to be understood. I'm not saying that we can understand exactly, but that's nothing to do really with anything that they did or they didn't do. Or, But here it almost seems we're saying they're all bad. I mean, why would we say bad? Okay, but that's maybe a good point too. That needs to be understood also. But what makes it even more difficult, Rashi is trying to tell this to a child. How's a child going to accept this? seems like to be a very far-fetched statement. But let's look something interesting. So the Rebbe says like this. Let's say, so basically here, what did these good animals, what did they do? So the question is, why were the Egyptians that gave their animals punished? 
What were they punished for? What, what did they do? What happens to the Egyptians that gave their animals? If you look at the Torah, it says nobody was left alive. It, the commentaries discussed already that all the Egyptians kind of long. It says he took along all of his people. So basically they all came. Whether you mentioned for whether they had a choice, didn't have a choice, but all of the Egyptians ended up, it says, not a single one was left. They all went into the ocean, to the sea, and the sea covered them up. It says, nobody was, was left. So, the question is, it seems like the uh, guilt of the, these people was because when they were chasing the Bnei Yisrael, so they had a part in it. What was their part in it? That they gave their animals. So they gave their animals. So the Rebbe says it can't be because they gave the animal to chase after the Jewish people. They didn't go themselves, but they gave their animals. That couldn't be the whole reason why they were punished. Why? Very simply. Because the verse states very clearly that Hashem said, I will harden their heart to chase after them. That meaning, that was a special act of Hashem because really, this wasn't a, a logical... Um, what happened here, after you left the Jewish people out because of all the plagues and all of the punishment, it didn't make any sense why are you going to chase them? I mean, we just... I mean, how much do you need to be beaten up already? You were already all beaten up. And the firstborn died. Everybody saw clearly it was the hand of Hashem. And you let them out already. So it's not logical for them to go and chase them. But Hashem, the verse says, Hashem made it because Hashem wanted to punish them. So Hashem, or Hashem wanted to to dry in the sea, to show them a final, so it means. But the verse says that that wasn't a logic. They didn't do it because they wanted to do it. Hashem hardened their heart to chase after them. So, why, why punish them? Why punish them for that? So, the way the Rebbe explains it, that this part of the punishment at the sea where they all died was actually a continuation of the punishment they received in Mitzrayim. Yes, we know about the ten plagues. Now, why did they punish the Mitzrayim? You can ask also in before it says, Hashem says, I will harden the heart of Paro. Hashem says, I will mock, mock Paro because I'm going to pretend as if he has a choice to let them go. And he didn't let them go. Well, the Egyptians actually dealt with the Jewish people very cruelly in the beginning, before the Makas. Uh, they treated them terribly. They worked them terribly. They humiliated them terribly. They were really beyond and above any measure even the way people that are mistreated, the Jews were mistreated even worse than that. So the Egyptians deserved the punishments. As the Rambam and Rashi brings down, they say that part of their punishment was that Hashem gave uh, them no choice. He took away their choice. So even if they wanted to let them out, they couldn't. Hashem hardened their heart, they couldn't let them out. But that was part of the punishment. It's not they're getting punished because their hearts were hardened. The hearts are the reverse. That's part of the punishment that their hearts were hardened and then they wish to, and Hashem gives them the makas that way. So this was part of that whole punishment of the makas, not specifically for them chasing the Bnei Yisrael because that was something which was unnatural for them to do. It wasn't out of the evilness of their heart. It was Hashem made them do. Hashem hardened their heart. So, the question is, why did Hashem punish them? 
you know, we live a lot of times amongst uh, people who are openly anti-Semitic. We know, sometimes we know people who are anti-Semitic. Sometimes, to us, we're shocked when some people will come out and make statements like they make, whether it's against the Jewish people, it's against Israel disguised against the Jewish people, but saying, well, the Jewish people are okay, but Israel's not okay. A lot of times we get shocked, we're surprised by this blatant anti-Semitism that we never realized. We never realized the degree, we never realized the hatred. And sometimes it's very doormat. Sometimes we don't know. So, you know, when you look around in Egypt, we look around in Egypt, during that time specifically, what went on over there, it looked like there were two sets of Egyptians. There was one set of Egyptians that were openly working the people and torturing them, abusing them, doing everything bad to them. That was one category of people. But there was another category of of people that we didn't know. They were people that feared the word of Hashem. They came across like religious, religiously involved people. Hashem says uh, there will be a plague. They believe. And they shelter their animals. So they have a little bit we don't know what these people are really on the inside. You know what? We would never know. These Egyptians who had those animals, we would never know what their feelings were. And even as suggested before, uh, maybe they didn't have a choice. Maybe Pharaoh and his gangs came up and took their animal, whatever was left over there. Maybe they did. That's true. But what Rashi is saying, if you look at the language of Rashi, Rashi uses the words mikam. From this, mikam Rashi means to say, from the fact that we see, figures out, from the fact that even these Egyptians, who only gave their animal, only gave their animals, were punished so severely. They died, totally annihilated, totally, nothing left that we must say that even those who gave the animals were infected with a hatred and they deserved this punishment because of their hatred. Basically, we wouldn't know that these people were so hateful. We wouldn't know that they are so against the Jewish people. But then we look around how they were punished. So we have to say that all of the Egyptians at that time, we're not talking about the Egyptians in general. It's not a problem from what the verse said that they're nice Egyptians. Of course there's nice Egyptians. That's not the issue over here. What we were wondering, what we were surprised a little bit is why were these sort of innocent Egyptians, what were they punished? They seemed to be kosher shebimitzrim. They seemed to be the righteous, the good ones about the Egypt. Oh, so this tells us, you know what? The best of those Egyptians that lived over there, they were infested, they had a hatred, and therefore they deserved to die. We wouldn't know it, but we know Hashem made it that way. That's how we find out now Mikan from what happened over here that this is really who they were. And that's why Rashi also brings the example from a snake. Just like a snake, you can't, they seem sometimes innocent. But there is a natural, as we learned in the beginning of the Chumash, Hashem created a hatred between the snake and man. The Eva Oshis, it says right in the beginning after the sin of the Eitz Hadas, it's such a hatred that you can't take any chances and you must crush its skull. Metaphorically speaking, you know, sometimes the 
Yetzer Hara, that evil inclination, is called like a snake. It's also a snake. Why is it called like a snake? Because we know that the snake convinced Chava to go ahead and taste from the tree she wasn't supposed to eat from the Eitzadas. So anytime we talk about a snake, we call him the Nochash HaKadmoni. The Yetzer Hara is like the earlier snake. He was, according to the Kabbalah, the snake was actually a manifestation of the uh, Satan who dressed up in the snake and came to Chavah. So always we have... So the Rebbe says we have to be very careful, even from a good snake. Sometimes the snake, the Yitzhara, tries to convince us. Uh, he comes with uh, very tricky ways. He tries to tell us, you know, I'm a good snake. A Tugshev and a Choshev. And mainly uh, people have an easier time or the Sahara can accept people doing things that are logical. Reason. Things that you understand make sense. Those are easy to do. But the snake, the Yitzhahara, says, it comes to you, he says things that you can't explain, things that are not reasonable, not rational. You talk about belief in Hashem, you talk about a soul, you talk about spirituality, you talk about Kabbalah, ah, you know. So, it's basically, the Nochosh has a conniving uh part to him. He actually, it says that the Nochash, as it starts in the Pasuk, it starts that the Nochash was the wisest. He came up with a scam. He came up with a scam to try to trip uh, Chava and Adam and get them to do. So he tried to use the scamming means he tried to use the intellect to try to get you to think and to say, you know what, I'm a good snake, you know. He says, it doesn't say crush his head, crush his brain. Don't accept his conniving, his ideas, his moyach, his ideas that he's trying to convince you, that don't accept. And uh, just stay away from any time trying to push you away or pull you away, take you away from your love and your connection to Hashem, don't listen to Him. Go ahead and uh, know what you have to do. And I think this is also a lesson to us that we always have to be very careful in uh, life. We can't get paranoid. We can't be suspicious. But we always have to be, as they say, alert, always on guard, and always on the lookout, you know. And I know we live in a relatively safe neighborhood where we live, Bor Hashem. And still, you know, we've seen things go on in different places. And we have to always be vigilant. We always have to be, and we have to know I'm not saying we're not killing anybody, but we have to know that even sometimes these, they smile to you and they look, you got to be very, very careful. But we don't know many times, but in Egypt at that time we knew. So this answers basically the question that the Rebbe asked in the beginning. Were there are many good Egyptians? Of course. We weren't talking about all Egyptians. We were only talking about the Mitzrim and that, those Mitzrim. How do we know that these Mitzrim were bad from the punishment? He says, Mikan, because they were punished, so we know. We talk, uh, we, would, we can't figure out, they're, in, they're disguising themselves. But from the punishment, we know. And it's also not a problem, because when the Torah explicitly states to not, not to despise the Mitzrim, oh, of course, a Mitzrim we're not allowed to, just because he's Egyptian? We can't despise them. You're allowed to intermarry them. After three, gen- after three generations, yes. That's okay. However, 
you're not supposed to know, but you're supposed to know that those Egyptians, why were they killed? Because they weren't, they weren't righteous. They weren't righteous. And that's why you have to look out. But other than that, uh, you know, uh, we know all the laws that apply because today when the Rambam and Halacha brings down because we live amongst the Goyim and everything else and everything, so we're supposed to treat them when it comes to saving lives or things, even violating the Shabbos, we're supposed to treat them in a way, uh, the way we would treat also Jewish people. I'm not going through the exact halachas, but the the point is, it's not really applicable in reality, the attitude of the Jewish people towards non-Jewish people or towards Egyptians or towards any other group and notwithstanding the fact that the Jewish people were accused that, uh, you know, from the Amalek, as uh, you mentioned, and from some of the other histories of the Torah, uh, the Jewish people are compassionate and a just and their laws and attitude and treatments of people who are not part of them is on the highest, with the highest regard, and it is in the most fairest and most righteous and uh, best ways possible. Okay, so this is the the first uh, subject that they wanted to talk today. And the next one uh, will be in a totally different, in a totally different uh, vein. This is a little bit of a more uh, a discussion, another discussion. And this is really based on later on in the Parsha. So, this is based on volume 11, Shalach 3. As I mentioned, this is the final Sikha in that series, starting 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. This is the final Sikha we're starting. Okay. So, of course, after the story, the Jews go into the desert and they need food to eat. What does Hashem give them as food? Mana. The mana. And I always like to say this, that what kind of bracha did they make on the mana? Hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. One who brings the bread from the heavens because the mana come from the heavens. Okay? Not Motzi Lechem in Haaretz, but Motzi Lechem in Hashemayim. And then God uh, gives them some rules that every day they should collect, and Friday they will get a double portion. That's why we have the Lechem Mishnah, double bread on Shabbos. And the verse states, in verse 29, it says, Re'u, see, but on Shabbos he says there will be no collection. Shabbos is a day of rest. And then there were some people didn't heed and they went to collect, they didn't get anything, but Hashem says again, He says, look, Hashem natan lachem at HaShabbat. God is giving you the Shabbos. That's why He gives you on Friday, on Yom HaShishi, lachem yomayim. He gives you bread for two days. Why is God giving you a double portion on Friday. Because he wants you to, to rest on Shabbos. So therefore, Shvu ish tachtom. Let a man, each man sit in his place on Shabbos. Al yetzei ish mimkoimoi bayoim hashvi. A person should not go out from his place on the seventh day. What is it talking about a person should not go out from his place? Whether it means to carry, whether it means... But Rashi brings down over here, and there's there's actually a big debate in Aloha, uh, discussion, exactly what the verse means. But I want to just talk about one thing, Rashi talks about the 2,000 Amas of Atchum Shabbos. Are you familiar with that concept? 
that on Shabbat one is not permitted to work walk more than 2,000 amos. 2,000 amos is approximately a kilometer. That's approximately. What does that mean? You can't go more than a kilometer. Oh, you say, wait a minute. I take a walk on Shabbos from my house to shul is more than a kilometer. You know, it's a kilometer. What does it mean? You can't walk on Shabbos. Tchum Shabbos means there's a boundary of Shabbos. You can't walk beyond the... Now again, Rashi says this is from the rabbis. That's not really what the Pasuk means. It's just leaning on this verse. Whether it's the Torah or Rabbanon, it's not our discussion now. We know about this, this idea of Tchum Shabbat, which is basically the boundary of Shabbat. On Shabbat, you're not allowed to walk more than 2,000 amas. You're not allowed to walk more than a kilometer. Okay? Let's use the figure kilometer. Now, how do we walk to Shul? How do we walk several miles? And the answer is that the entire city is considered one area. What is a city? The housing that are next to each other is all the same area. It's considered like my area or like my far cubits. This 2,000 amas starts at the end of the city. From the outskirts of the city, you can't go any more a kilometer further than that. But once, if you're in the city, you can walk for as much as you want, for as much as you wish. You're talking about an A roof when you say well, the there's city? No, there's an A there too, but not exactly. You are not allowed to walk beyond the city limits. And let's not discuss exactly what the city limits. Beyond the city limits, you're not allowed to walk more than a kilometer. Mm-hmm. that's called the Tchum Shabbat most of the places where we live today it's city area so it's all included we can walk wherever we want but when we used to go for example in the summers we used to go up into the uh, the mountains into the uh, uh, upstate Catskill. New York the Catskill Mountains or other places then on Shabbat you could not walk like for a walk beyond a kilometer, because that would be going outside of the Tchum Shabbat. Okay? And we learn it, that's what we learn from this Pasuk. Uh, Don't go beyond the 2,000 Amas and Shabbos. Okay. So, I want to discuss this, something about this. Okay. What happens, somebody was rushing very late to come to the city, and you didn't make it into the city before Shabbat. So that means that your resting place is outside of the city. Now, outside of the city, you still have one kilometer. But you are outside of the kilometer you're rushing, rushing, rushing to get to the city. So now you're considered like you're not in the city. So your place that you can walk is from the exact point where you stop on Shabbat, before Shabbat, when Shabbat enters. You have one kilometer in each direction. You can go each direction, you can go one kilometer. And that's it. If you're going to go into the city, you can walk up to one kilometer from the place where you are. And you can't go any further because your resting place is considered to be outside of the city. Okay, if you did not make it into the city before Shabbos, if you are outside of the Tchum, even if you are short, one Amma, in other words, you can you just missed it, one Amma, out, you cannot go in. Why? Because, I mean, you, you cannot go because you can't go more than 
the 2,000 Amas. That's too, too bad. We can't do it. We can't help you. That's the opinion, the first opinion. Reb Shimon says, no. Even 15 Amas, you should go in. He says, 15 Amas, you should go in. Now, if you're going to go in to the city, you're going to be violating the Tchum Shabbos. You're going to be violating. You're going to be walking more than 2,000 Amas, and your resting place was outside. But he still says you should go in. I don't want to go in through the whole, there's a whole lengthy discussion about it. But again, this is the issue. A person is outside of the city, What's going to happen to the person being outside of the city? He's going to be lonely. He's going to be sad. He's not going to be able to celebrate Shabbos. He's not going to be able to enjoy the Shabbos. He'll have to be where he's standing for whole Shabbos. Now, you know, you'd be surprised that it is actually a mitzvah to make an Erev. In the city, there's a mitzvah to make an Erev. Why is there a mitzvah to make an Erev? So that you can enjoy Shabbos. You know, there is a mitzvah from the Torah to go ahead and enjoy the Shabbos. Eat well, drink well, dress well, take nice walks, enjoy. We're trying to enjoy the Shabbos. The Shabbos should be enjoyed. If you don't have an Erev, I mean, if you can't make an Erev, you can't. But in places that you could make an Erev, you should make an Erev. Why? To enjoy the Shabbos. That's what he's doing. Now, we can imagine what kind of enjoying of a Shabbos will this person who's sitting outside all by himself outside of the city for entire Shabbos. That's not going to be an enjoyment. Okay? If we make you spend all Shabbos outside of the Tchum, like the rabbi suggested, you cannot go in, and you make you spend the Tchum, you will be miserable all Shabbos. But, even if you're miserable all Shabbos, you will not have been doing, violating anything. You just were sitting there. Let's say, according to the rabbis, they say, just sit there, don't do anything. I'm not enjoying Shabbos. But you're not doing an act. You're not going ahead and and doing anything that's prohibited. You're just sitting there and not allowing yourself to enjoy the Shabbos. What happens if we allow you to go in? Then you are violating only upon entry. You're doing one act of violation. You're going in. But you will enjoy the whole Shabbos. So, this is actually an issue of quantity versus quality. Which means, if you look at the prohibition, what I'm doing wrong, okay? You're doing wrong, it's, it's, it's worse to do an act to violate the Shabbos by going into the city rather than just sitting back and doing nothing. I'm not doing anything. I'm just not enjoying the Shabbos. So, quality-wise, it's worse to go into the city and do a violation than sitting out there and not doing anything so you're not doing any act but quantity wise if I don't go in all Shabbos I'll be miserable but if I do go in even though I'll do an act of going in outside of the Tchum but yet I'll have all Shabbos to enjoy I'll give you another what overrides what Quality versus quantity. The rabbis think that quality, which means they say, we don't care that you're not going to enjoy the whole Shabbos. You sit out there and be miserable all Shabbos, but we don't want you to get up and walk into the city because if you get up and walk, you'll be violating. But Rabbi Shimon thinks, no, quantity. He says, you know what? I'm going to allow you to violate, do one violation, but the quantity of the Shabbos is going to be observed.
you are going to be able to enjoy a whole Shabbos. So even though we're going to make you, we're going to allow you to do a bigger sort of a quality, a greater, a bigger offense, which is to actively go and enter the Tehom when you're not allowed to, but then you're going to be able to enjoy the whole Shabbos. That's how the Rebbe wants to explain it. Give you another interesting example and uh, something to think about. What happens when a person's life is in danger? Right? And he needs meat. I mean, I hope I don't have any vegan people on the class, but he needs meat. Some people will say the meat is going to endanger his life. But in this case, the doctor said that he needs meat. He needs meat to save his life. It's just an example. It's just a scenario. He needs meat. Of course, we know that if somebody's life is in danger, you always violate the Shabbat. There's not a question. The most holiest thing to for the Shabbos is to violate the Shabbos if you can save somebody else's life. It's a mitzvah to violate the Shabbos if somebody's life is in danger. And it's a prohibition to not violate the Shabbos when somebody's life is in danger. So we know you're allowed to. But this guy needs meat. Now, there's two ways we can feed him the meat. Okay? If we... Oh, I'll slatter it. This is a wrong word over here. Oh, M-E-A-T. No. Oh. oh slaughtered is S-L-A. U-G-H. Oh, unsalted meat. Oh. If we serve him, if we serve him unsalted meat, okay? In other words, what is unsalted meat? Unslaughtered. Okay. I said unsalted. I didn't mean unsalted. I mean unslaughtered. I mean... If you're just going to take an animal, you're not going to shecht it. You're not going to slaughter it ritually, right? You're just going to uh, have a, you know, uh, get a uh, a trade piece of meat. You know, you didn't, you're not going to, you're going to go to the non-kosher butcher shop and pick up a, a piece of meat from the from the shelf, right? You're going to pick up a piece of meat in the, no Wendy's, you know, whatever, you know. Just pick up a piece of meat that he needs to eat. Okay? So, now, every bite he takes, the sick person, he would be violating a prohibition. Because every bite you eat, non-kosher food, it's a quantity. Okay? So, the prohibition against eating non-kosher food is only a prohibition. It's a law. It's a prohibition. It's considered a lesser degree than the violation of the Shabbos, which is on a higher category. If we say, no, 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 no. We don't want you to eat non-kosher meat, even though your life is in danger. You need to eat meat. But why feed you non-kosher meat? Let's go and feed you kosher meat. But in order to feed you the kosher meat, we're going to have to go ahead and take an animal and shecht it and, and, and violate the Shabbos. You can either go into the Wendy's to the, and buy a piece of meat, which the meat will be, all the quantities will be... Uh, by, well, not a Wendy, a Burger King, whatever. So if we're going to serve him uh, meat then he's going to be eating every bite he's going to take, he's going to be eating non-kosher. But if we go and we do one offense, we're going to shech the animal, that's already a bigger violation of the Shabbat. It's not just eating non-kosher, it's violation of Shabbat. So, it'll be done once, and now he'll be eating kosher meat. So then we say that the quantity overrides the quality and we slaughtered the animal. That means that the fact, we don't want him to eat so many times non-kosher meat. 
So we're going to say, do a bigger violation. But it'll be once. Then do a whole bunch of small offenses, which is less. Because doing it many times overrides the one big time, one bigger Avera. This is not a rule that applies all the time. There is, uh, here we're talking about that the quality is an issue between the Shabbos offense or non-kosher. But this ties in to the same issue as Rabbi Shimon, we learned before, who said that go in, enjoy your Shabbos, even though you're going to do one violation, go ahead and enjoy the Shabbos. It's more important that the quantity should be taken care of than the violating one of the quantities. It's just the idea. I mean, you got to know when to apply it. We can't just apply it everywhere. But I think the same thing is this quantity is also in the positive. You know, sometimes we have opportunities to do a big mitzvah. All we want a big mitzvah. But sometimes we have the possibility of doing a lot, a lot of small mitzvahs. As for example, and the Rebbe always advocates, give a small coin, have a pushka in your house, give a coin every single day for them. Put something in. So, of course, a big, you know, you give a, a big donation, that's something which is very nice, very substantial. But the quantity of doing it all the time actually overrides and is more power to it than the equal amount in the uh, quantity. In the Alta Rebbe's days, uh, they used to support with their tzedakah the people that lived in Israel. And the Alta Rebbe spearheaded that fund. And the people would contribute all the time. And the Alta Rebbe speaks in many of his letters that he says, he says, get used to the idea of doing a lot of quantities. Every day we should give tzedakah, every day we should do a mitzvah. We should keep the quantity going. In the end of the day, the quantity seems to be overriding the quality. Doing lots of mitzvahs, lots of days, small mitzvahs, overrides doing one mitzvah, uh, which is a very huge mitzvah. And um, I think all of our small mitzvahs together add up and they become like uh, one huge mitzvah. And the Rambam says that before a person comes for a decision what to do, he should always look, imagine that the world is a scale. It's half merits and half guilt. And also himself, he has a scale, he's also half merits, half scales, half good and half merits. If you do one good deed, the quantity is going to tip the scale and you're going to bring salvation to yourself and to the whole world. And hopefully we can bring salvation and Hashem will bring His Mashiach and very speedily nowadays.